0: Welcome to the panel, RNZ National. Sally Wenley, Michael Moynihan with me, by the way. Had quite a big response to Sally's, I've been thinking. We'll sneak in a bit of that and also footpaths as well. Uh, more on that later. But to this, the Fair Pay Agreements Bill passed its third reading in Parliament, 76 votes to 43, with the support of Labour, the Greens and Te Pāti Māori. It was a fiery debate in Parliament yesterday, but is set to become law. Nash to enact vehemently against it. Lightning it to compulsory unionism. National will repeal it if elected next year. It's seen as one of the most significant shifts in employment relations in decades. And the bill provides... A framework for collective bargaining across occupations like cleaners, supermarket workers and security guards rather than just between unions and employers. Proponents, will they say it will stop a roast to the bottom stemming the inclination to drive down wages. Critics say it'll make workplaces less flexible and make all workers beholden to a union agenda. But an explainer, what will it mean for you? Well, Caro Riga is uh, an employment lawyer and he's been discussing this very bill at a conference as we speak with several hundred other employment lawyers and has taken time in a quiet space to join us this afternoon. Kara, kia Welcome to the panel.
1: Sure, Wallace. It's a beautiful day here. Well, I'm not sure about beautiful day in Christchurch <laughs> today, actually, but it's a lovely day. Talking about employment law, <laughs> I'm sure you're other employment lawyers. <laughs> yeah, and
0: I'm sure you've been inside all day and all afternoon. So, thanks for being with us. So, what is the big change? How will negotiations with employers look different?
1: So people will – I'm about to say we're looking at a broader view of collective bargaining. Right. And people will think, you know, I've heard of but collective bargaining before. How is this different? But the reason it's different is normally when you're entering into collective bargaining, it's a union um, representing its members with a particular employer to reach some form of agreement. The difference here is we're now looking at what I term as industry-wide collective bargaining. So multiple employers entering into negotiations with employees and it affects every employee in that area of work.
0: Ah, and and by the way, if you have a question for Caro, um, be quick. Do text it now two one zero one. So negotiations will be triggered. I understand um, by uh, with employers by one thousand employees or ten percent of the workers under the proposed coverage. Is that the case? That's how they be triggered.
1: Yes, that's right. So um, for a union to initiate bargaining on behalf of the employees of the industry or sector, they, they require um, what we call the um, representation test, which is, um, as you say, a, a thousand people or employees in that industry or sector or 10%. Uh, and also another test as well, but I won't go into that. Cause right. and, <laughs> and, and, you, and,
0: <laughs> and you need to be part of a union to be covered by a fair pay agreement?
1: Uh, well, that's the really interesting thing about it. Um, once the fair pay agreement is ratified, so once the bargaining's all done, um, it impacts every employee in the sector, irrespective oh. of whether or not they're
2: a union member or not.
0: Okay, interesting. All right, Sally Wenley.
2: On the other side, the employers, are they expected to get a group together? How will they present their um, side for the negotiations? Yeah, so there's, it's,
1: that's one of the big questions that's been asked and mm. Business, New, uh, Business New Zealand have said that they won't do that on behalf of employers. That's my understanding of what they've said. Um, so it is about employers getting together together and then there's the big question around why do bigger employers have more votes in in this um, ratification process than smaller employers, which means that they're potentially going to have more weight in the discussion, um, which will ultimately impact the 97% of businesses in New Zealand,
2: which are those with less than 20 employees.
0: Yeah. Sally.
2: Oh gosh. So, if Business New Zealand won't help, um, and the businesses they're not part of an association, and they don't want to be involved, who steps up on their behalf?
1: Um, well, the million-dollar question. I'd I'd love to know the answer. Um, that they, they will be forced essentially. I don't like the word force, but they will be compelled in to these discussions by, um, once the representation test is triggered, once there is a thousand uh, workers or employees who are willing yeah. to yeah. initiate this, they will have to come to the party. How they do that um, is going to be... One, that's why it's deemed to be one of the yeah. biggest reforms in employment law since the Employment Relations Act, which has been
2: in force for 22 years. So it's a major change that we're looking at.
0: Yeah, right, Gosh, Michael. Gosh, it
2: is. And 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 the Employment Relations Authority would they have quite a big role potentially? Do you know? I understand it's early days, things mm. to understand, yeah. but what what role will they have?
1: Well, they have they have an enormous role, and that has been one of the uh, criticism through the select committee process. One of the things that's been raised by um, a, n- a number of interested parties in the in the bill process. Um, the first thing that they will do is, um, if once there's an agreement to be reached, once we've got a fair pay agreement that needs to be ratified they have to check a couple of things before they ratify it. So it's actually ratified by the Employment Relations Authority. That's step number one. Um, The second and very significant power that um, they will then hold is if if these negotiations go on and after two attempts to ratify an agreement, it doesn't happen. Um, They can't get an agreement. The Employment Relations Authority at that point has an opportunity to step in and essentially make a decision okay. on behalf of the All right, let's,
0: let's bring in Michael. Now, by the way, we are with Caro Riga, who is an employment lawyer and has been uh, all day at a conference
3: speaking about this very topic. Michael. Um, so, Caro, I've got a couple of questions, but I'd, I'll frame it by saying, look, I think that it's a personally think it's a very useful thing for a government to take a position that says, actually, there does need to be a good look at this. There does need to be a redress to imbalance. There does need to be a management of power. There does need to be something that says uh, it isn't just a free-for-all. And I'm not suggesting it's a free-for-all, but just that this is – I, I think broadly that this is uh, an important and, I think, useful piece of legislation. Questions, though, for me are um, – Is it clear what happens when perhaps a business might sit across more than one sector or more than one, you know, might have actually more than one kind of part to it and therefore it isn't all just, you know, uh, I don't know, um, uh, 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 technical people and um, uh, they've got other parts to their business. So that's one question. The second, I guess, is that is it – is there an aspect of this which is designed – actually to set sort of base level of expectations in a sector over which or around which an employer could then have a discussion with their own employees.
1: Right. Um so the first question is around coverage, what I refer to as coverage. So the minute an employer has one employee who is covered by a fair pay agreement, they are required to, at a minimum, have this the terms of the fair pay agreement um, for that employee.
3: Actually, actually, Caro, I was thinking more about definition. So um, would a business define themselves or is it that if if a business defines itself, say, as a technology business, but in fact they've also got people who assemble the kit and put it in boxes, Are they a technology business and therefore might be covered by a technology award or – sorry, not by a technology award, by a technology agreement? Or would they be a mixed business?
1: Uh, So if there's a potential overlap of coverage um, in in relation to employees, not in terms of the business, then that question's answered or – by the Employment Relations Authority before the ratification
0: process. Needless to say, still quite a bit to be worked through, Caro, but we'll have to leave it there. But we will come back to it, I'm sure. sure. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time for us out of the conference. I do appreciate it. That is employment lawyer, uh, uh, Caro Rieger there. 17 pass for the panel. What does the future hold for New Zealand's relationship with China as President Xi solidifies his grip on power? The strongman Supreme Leader is now unrivaled. At the weekend, he extended his rule beyond the usual decade in power and stacked his inner circle with allies. The Chinese Communist Party Congress was also marked by the removal of former leader Hu Jintao from the stage, escorted escorted away. But this Consolidation of power, it might come at a cost for our biggest trading partner. With us to discuss is Associate Professor Jason Young, the Director of Victoria University's Contemporary China Research Centre. Jason, welcome to the programme.
4: Good afternoon, Wallace. Uh,
0: Just with President Xi becoming increasingly authoritarian, or, or so it seems, what could be in store for China itself?
4: Um, Well, I mean, it's the classic challenge for authoritarian countries when you have a consolidation of power at the top um, and the leader, which seems to be in this case, has surrounded himself with people who are loyal uh, rather than contesting policy. Then there's always the challenge that um, the, the, the leadership could put through policy, not get proper feedback, um, not put through policy in a way that is best for the people of China, best for the development of China, um, and could also lead to more sort of stronger um, tactics from China in terms of its foreign relations.
0: Right. There was extraordinary interest, wasn't there, uh, Jason, about uh, that very public removal of uh, Hu Tao from the stage uh, after he was seen arguing about official papers at the meeting. It was quite the watch. What's What's your sense on what went on there? We still really don't sort of seem to fully understand the whole picture.
4: Um, no, and I don't think we will understand the whole oh. picture for, for, for quite a while. I mean, it, it's you look at the footage, it's extraordinary footage to see. Um, these types of events are always incredibly scripted. Oh. Um, they're very, very formal uh, and so, to see someone removed, either for health reasons or perhaps he wasn't following protocol, he wasn't supposed to be looking at those papers at that time. Uh, it really sends a, a sort of a, a signal that, um, that that things weren't going quite right, uh, and that also that uh, Hu Jintao, who was part of the a, a different faction within the party, has certainly been sidelined, and his supporters also. Should
3: we start with Michael? Well, it's um, all of those things. Uh, chilling uh, enough for the Chinese people. It is um, chilling when you think about the influence that this regime has. It's an, it's an irony, isn't it, as you said, that um, uh, absolute power encourages you to take no other view. Um, that's the way you maintain absolute power. And I don't um, – I, I just I, – this doesn't feel – it doesn't feel to me as if on the cusp of a world which is – getting increasingly complex that having a narrow view of how that world from a Chinese perspective might play out is a particularly good idea for any of us so worry I I have to say it worries me and I would have thought that actually from a legacy point of view um they might have even seen that for themselves but clearly not yeah Jason um, well, I think, you know, the history of the Chinese Communist Party is, is one of internal fractions
4: and there has been uh, sort of periods when we have strongman rule, such as uh, under Mao Zedong uh, and other periods where you had more collective leadership and there was more contestation. There was even more public contestation about different types of policy ideas. Uh, so, so we would w- want to be hoping um, for the benefit of China and also for the benefit of China's engagement with other parts of the world uh, that we would see a return to more contestation of the policy, more questioning of different um, types of policy positions. Uh, the, the clear example at the moment is the question around China's dynamic COVID-0 policy and you know, how long that will last and whether or not there's different ideas being put forth and different ways of trying to move out of that.
3: But Jason, there's nothing in what you're seeing at the moment that would indicate that they're embracing the idea of, cont- uh, of contestable um, uh, uh, ideology.
4: Um, well there are still debates and it's still up in the air, for example, um, what does this new uh, makeup of the Politburo mean for China's economic reform? Uh will the reform process carry on? Uh, sort of the institutionalization, regularisation of the of the economy, or are we seeing a different approach? Um so there is still some areas which are, are contested and you know, nice. China scholars are trying to read the tea leaves, but it's becoming increasingly hard to see that sort of contested publicly or even within the different positions. Let's bring Sally in.
2: Yes, with these, um, the economic struggles that it appears to be having, as you said, um, Jason, with its COVID-19 policy, and I'm wondering how that could affect New Zealand. Would that potentially mean that our trade might not be as large with China, or any changes or more um, rules and regulations for our country with trade there?
4: So New Zealand exports about 33% of our uh, goods trade exports to China. So it's a really important market. Um, there's a couple of different things going on. So uh, on the one hand, you see that there is more consumption in China and there's a promotion of the idea that Chinese people should consume more to try to readdress some of the imbalances in the economy between investment and consumption. Uh, So those trends look good, and New Zealand products are are well thought of in China. um, I think in New Zealand there's a debate about uh, sort of over-dependency on the Chinese market. Uh, So that's one end of the debate. But then in China... Uh, there's, there's sort of questions about what the long-term uh, way that they get out of the sort of ongoing COVID lockdowns, which can have quite um, large impacts on yep. supply chains and also on consumption. Oh, goes. Yes.
0: Yeah, so very interesting, Jason, and I'm sure we'll be keeping a, a, a big watch on this issue. But from now, I appreciate your time. That's Jason Young there, the Director of Victoria University's Contemporary China uh, Research Centre. 23 past for the panel uh, with me, Wallace Chap, and I'm with Sally Wenley and Michael Moynihan this afternoon. And news today, well, just this afternoon, actually, former Auckland Mayor Phil Goff has been appointed as New Zealand's next High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. He will take up the new role at the start of next year. Minister of Foreign Affairs Nanaia Mahuta said Gough had the skills New Zealand needed in London. He held the Foreign Affairs, Trade and Defence portfolios and was Labour Party leader during his 32 years in Parliament. And in other news, uh, sitting councillor Desley Simpson has been selected to be Auckland City's uh, Deputy Mayor there was a press conference or I think about three thirty on that one anyway with us is a uh, Phil Goff. cure Phil
5: yeah cure Wallace you and and michael
0: yeah uh, and 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 Phil let's make no mistake about it and I think that Michael touched on it with as i've been thinking you are going to the UK at a really pivotal time aren't you
5: well it's a really fascinating time um you know apart from obviously um the interesting uh, political developments in recent times. That's uh, not something that, uh, obviously, in my new position, I I, I comment on publicly. But interesting for a variety of reasons. One, we've got this new gold standard uh, free trade agreement that will come into effect, um, hopefully, in the near future. So that will open up a whole lot of new opportunities. And for New Zealand, I think it's quite important to diversify our, our, our trading markets so we don't have all of our eggs uh, in one basket, which you know as uh, as one of the people that helped negotiate the fDA with China. We, we have developed the, the sort of reliance on china that we were probably once had on the united kingdom so the yeah. chance to diversify our, our markets will be good uh we've got the major conflict of course um with the russian invasion of ukraine and the way in which we are best able to help ukraine to protect its uh, its freedom and its independence is working closely with the brits which we're doing you know across uh defense and security services uh, so that that will be a big issue there. And, of course, the United Kingdom, having come out of the, um, the European Union, is very keen to refocus its activities, including in the Indo-Pacific region. And as a like-minded country, the UK can bring a lot of resources to us uh, in areas like the Pacific. So, yeah, some exciting things happening. Yeah. All and, right, let's and bring, of course, let's the new monarch.
0: Of, well, of course. Now, let's bring in our, our panellists. They'll have questions for you also. Phil Selling.
2: Phil, congratulations on your role, the worst kept secret, wasn't it? Hey, now, (laughs) are you a a monarchist or a republican? What are your thoughts there on the future of the monarchy in our country?
5: Yeah, I don't see any change in the the near future on the monarchy. Um, I think probably most New Zealanders uh, uh, are not um, terribly exercised about the fact that uh, The the King is King of New Zealand as well. Uh, We had that for 70 years under under Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, I think, as the Prime Minister does, that uh, ultimately we will have our own head of state. But in the meantime, um, I I think um, we do pretty well. Our Governor-General effectively exercises most uh, constitutional roles on behalf of the monarch. And uh, the monarch is... um, you know, an, an attachment uh, to our history, uh, our constitution, and and I think King Charles will actually have, having met him and had uh, a reasonable discussion with him. Uh, I I think he'll perform, um, you know, exceptionally well in in the role that he has. So right. no no need to think about change in the immediate future. Michael.
3: Uh, extraordinarily diplomatic answer yeah. there, Mr. Goff. Congratulations. Congratulations. I'd add my congratulations to that, and I think we're lucky to have you in that post. I think you'll do a fantastic job. Um, having um, been the mayor of Auckland, I imagine you'll find English politics a very easy thing to navigate and negotiate. <laughs> Perhaps. It'll be, it'll be Perhaps. much easier, I would have thought. Um, do yeah. you yeah. think there is one thing? I mean, I know this is – it's. You all have been thinking about this, but if, if we could as a country do one thing in relation to how we might engage with the UK to make a change, something significant, climate change, trade, you know, what, what might that be? Where's the part that we could have uh, a, a kind of transformative um, partnership with them?
5: Yeah, well, I think you put your finger on one of them, and that's climate change. And the the United Kingdom plays a leading role and is a very generous uh, financial supporter of new climate change initiatives. Uh, It also ties in with our free trade agreement, because increasingly for us to uh, trade into a country like the United Kingdom or for the European Union, for that matter, uh, we need to demonstrate that we are meeting the same sort of standards and have the same sort of commitments uh, as the farmers have to meet in those markets. So uh, I think uh, working together with the United Kingdom uh, on climate change and environmental sustainability is really important. Uh, they have enormous resources, uh, intellectual and financial, and they are like-minded to us. So working with them um, increases the resources that are available for us to achieve our common values.
0: Mm. Hey, but finally... Uh, so, uh, for uh, will finally- you- can I oh. can I just jump in because I, I want to sort of come back uh, a little bit to, um, uh, to your time as Auckland Mayor. Uh, Auckland Mayor for some time, now Wayne Brown. Such different styles, Phil. Such different styles. What advice would you give to Wayne?
5: Well, um, I probably wouldn't give advice to Wayne publicly and I've made a, a, a statement that I think is important having witnessed um, former mayors, former prime ministers, etc. Um, I'm I'm keeping my thoughts on council and uh, various associated issues pretty much to myself. It's for the newly elected mayor and council to get on and do the job in the best way that they think. I wish them every success, and I hope that they can work together effectively for the benefit of right. the city. Okay. They, they right. don't need a retired mayor to, to be looking over <laughs> their shoulder saying, hey, Fair enough. when I was mayor, I, I would have done this. Um, that's not appropriate. Brief
2: response from Sally? Yes, yeah, I just wanted to know, Phil, uh, these offshore diplomatic roles, uh, sometimes it's, you, you might be known as the Commissioner of Wine and Cheese, or are you going to actually be able to roll up your sleeves and do things on the ground for New Zealand?
5: I oh, oh, totally the latter. I'm not much interested in wine and cheese and you know that that aspect of it. Um, I'm I'm interested in as I have been through my political career and working as hard as I can to make a real difference on behalf of my country, and that's what I'll be doing.
0: All right, good on you, Phil. Thanks for being with us on the panel. Thanks, Phil. Okay, okay. It's a real pleasure. Thank, thanks, guys. Uh, that is Phil Golf. Let's be honest though, uh, Sally. You've got to, in a role like that, you've got to make a little bit of time for a little bit of brie. <laughs> and a nice uh, Hawke's Bay Cabernet, right? Chardonnay. Well, Chardonnay. 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 <laughs> Hawke's Bay Chardonnay. I would, I would, that's for sure. Yep. Anyway, you're, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Um, quite a response to Sally Wendley's I've been thinking. What's the Michael Moiners. actually? You're in rare uniform, 100% agreement that they're great, which is very rare on the panel, oh, I can tell you. Anyway, it's time for headlines.